chapter number five, we'll be looking at the landmarks of Scripture. And uh, y'all going to have to help me out just a little bit tonight because we are going to cover more Scripture than we typically do. Um, I feel like we typically cover a pretty good amount, but there's a little bit less in the work and a little bit more in the Scripture tonight. And there's nothing wrong with that. Um, I actually made the statement on social media today that there is a difference between using the Bible to preach and preaching the Bible. They're not the same thing. What you have in the majority of churches in the United States, arguably the majority of the churches around the world, is people preach and they use the Bible to preach. They, they're preaching and they're taking what God says to back them up. They're saying, I've got, the, I've got the backing of God in what I'm saying. Where what the Scripture tells us to do is not to use the Scriptures to preach, but to preach the Scriptures themselves. What we're called to do is not get God behind us in the way we're going, but get behind God in the way He's going. And that's what moving down through Scripture will do for us. I mean, as we've seen here on Wednesday nights, there are times to look at specific scriptures concerning specific topics. But even in that, we can't use these specific scriptures to prove topics. We're using scriptures to show us topics. And we're lining up those topics. We're doing it just like on Sunday mornings. We're looking at things in a systematic way. We're not necessarily going down verse by verse by verse by verse, but we're taking this topic here in these verses and this topic here in these verses and showing how these topics match up. But even in that, we're just saying what is in the Scriptures. We're not trying to bring topics in and preach on wild things and try and make the Scriptures back of what we're saying. Um, The analogy was used in a book that I read about preaching that too many people use the Scriptures as a lamppost and that's what it's meant to be used for. So it's, it lights our way. It guides us. But they use it as a drunk to help them hold themselves up. They're holding themselves up with Scripture because if they let go, they're going to fall down. Where they should be using Scripture in the way that it was meant to be used to enlighten the way that they're going. Not just holding up their own ideas and their own thought processes and their own standards and their own teachings. But all that being said, this is part of the reason that we go through the stuff we go through on Wednesday night is to help us learn what the Bible actually says and how to see what the Bible actually says. Anyway, Samuel, if you don't mind turning to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10 and 11. And Lindsay, I'm going to go ahead and have you take Luke 4, 18 through 21 and Acts 3, 22 through 26. 22 through 26. Brother Charles, if you'll look at John 2, 13 through 22 and Hebrews 4 and verse 14. And then Dad, if you will look at Matthew 12, 28 and Acts 2, 29 through 36. Like I said, it's a little bit more majority of Scripture tonight. But what we're going to be covering is landmarks. 
And that is the first, the first answer on your paper, Reese. The first answer on your paper is landmarks. Places like Pikes Peak, for example, are landmarks. They help us quickly understand where we are on a wider scale. One of the other examples that we could use of that, if I see the Eiffel Tower, I may not know where in Paris I am. I may not know what street I'm on in Paris. I may not have seen the street signs yet, but I know I'm in the right place because I see the Eiffel Tower. I know I'm in Paris. We know we're in New York if we see the Statue of Liberty. You know you're in Washington, D.C. if you see the White House and the Washington Monument. These are all landmarks. For us, we may know where we're at coming. I may know where I'm at coming down Miller Road because I see a broken down tractor and then a shed. I was like, oh, well, I know this is, I may not have seen the road sign for Weaver Road, but I know, hey, I'm coming up on Weaver Road because I've got these landmarks to know about where I'm at. And the scripture does the same thing. So we understand from looking back at our previous chapters The Bible all leads us to Christ. We started out there showing that everything leads us to Christ. We looked at the streams that flow around us so we can kind of get a bearing on which way those streams are headed. We've looked at the roads themselves so we can know the names of these roads and where they're headed. We've looked at the, or I guess the the, the context of the roads and where we're headed. Last week we looked at the road signs, the signs that show us exactly, they're pointing directly where they're going. And today we'll look at the landmarks to help us anywhere we're at in Scripture. We may not know exactly what road we're on. We may not at the point in time know exactly what covenant or what stream we're in. But what we can do is we can look at what's going on and see landmarks in Scripture. So what we're going to look at this evening is the three theocratic offices we find in the scriptures. These three theocratic offices, will, will, they will be used as our landmarks. Secondly, we'll look at why we need buffers and bridges in these paths. And thirdly, we'll look at how these roles are explained in the New Testament. So, Samuel, if you don't mind reading our opening verse for us, which is 1 Peter 1, 10, and 11. Of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ, which was in them, did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow this is one of the verses that we've used previously, that the scriptures are all going to point us to the suffering and the glory of Christ. But it says that they searched out diligently to find out, basically to find out where they were at. And that's the call to us. Let us search out diligently the scriptures to find out what the scriptures are saying, to find out how they're pointing about Christ in that specific area. So first of all, we want to look at the Three theocratic offices. Theocratic basically means an office that is held by a person. I mean, that's a pretty basic explanation. But it's an office that's held 
specifically by a person. These three offices we will find as we move through the Old Testament. And these three offices, and they'll be your next three blanks, are prophets, priests, and kings. These three offices, so prophets, priests, and kings, all act as mediators or federal heads for the people that are under them. They, they basically act as and help in these major covenants. And if you think about a mountain, we talked about Pikes Peak. If you think about a mountain, that is where streams flow from. Streams flow down from mountains. So from these mountains, we will always see the streams of the covenant coming down from them. The streams of the covenant find their sources in these offices. From chapter 2 to chapter 4, all of these types and all these streams are withheld in these landmarks. They spring out from these landmarks. So first of all, we see the prophet. So Lindsay, if you'll read Luke 4, 18 through 21. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set up at liberty them that are bruised to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, and he gave it again to the minister, and sat down. And the eyes of all in that were in the synagogue passing on him. What Jesus did in that text, and then we'll look at Acts 3, 22 and 26 here in just a second. What Jesus had done in that text, he went to the synagogue, and the way that they would do things is they would pass around, a different person would speak on a different Sabbath. And most of the time, these men did not speak with authority. They spake basically in, in a conversation, trying to figure out what things may have meant. Well, Jesus got up in the synagogue, which was his custom. He had done this before. But he got up and he spake with authority. And he read in a verse in Psalms that said, The Lord hath anointed me. To preach the gospel. And he goes on and mentions another couple things. He said he's anointed me to preach the gospel. He's anointed me to help the sick, to help the poor. There's things that he said. He, he said from this passage in Isaiah. So this passage in Isaiah is pointing us to Christ. Because Christ said it was about him. He speaks in another text and says, In your ears this day has this been fulfilled. He's saying, this was talking about me and you just heard it fulfilled. So Christ is promised in Isaiah that he is the prophet. So we see Christ as the prophet promised in Luke 4, 18 and 21. Now Acts 3, 22 through 26. For Moses truly said unto the fathers, a prophet shall Lord your God raise up unto you him shall you hear in all things whatsoever he shall say unto you. And it shall come to pass that every soul which will not hear that prophet shall be destroyed from among the people. 
yea, and all the prophets from Samuel and those that follow after them. As many as spoken have likewise foretold of these days. Ye are the children of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying unto Abraham, And in thy seed shall all the kindreds of the earth be blessed. Unto you first God, having raised up his son Jesus, sent him to bless you, and turning away every one of you from his iniquity. So in Acts, we saw the promise that Christ said he was the prophet in Luke. And in Acts, we see the fulfillment that Christ was indeed the prophet that was come. Secondly, the next theocratic position we see in the Old Testament and ultimately fulfilled in Christ is a priest. So Brother Charles, if you don't mind looking at John 2 verses 13 through 22. And the Jews' Passover was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem and found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changes of money sitting. And when he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them all out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overthrew the tables, and said unto them that sold doves, Take these things hence, make not my father's house a house of merchandise. And his disciples remembered that it was written, The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. Then answered the Jews and said unto him, What sign showest thou unto us, seeing that thou doest these things? Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then said the Jews, Forty and six years was the temple in building, and wilt thou rear it up in three days? But he spake of the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this unto them. And they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. So here Christ was basically promising that he was the prophet. He was in the house of God cleansing out all of the iniquity. All of the stuff that had gotten intermingled into the sacrifices. And that was the priest's job. The priest's job was to keep all that clean. So Christ took upon himself, as he did in Luke, in John, he takes upon himself the role of a priest. And then Hebrews chapter number 4 and verse number 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. And in Hebrews, we see that same priest fulfilled. He said, we have a great high priest. He said, he didn't, just, he didn't just come and take on the role of a high priest for a little while, but he was our great high priest. Yeah. And then thirdly, we can see the third office is a king. If you'll read Matthew 8, or Matthew 28, Matthew 12, 28, and then we'll look at Acts 29 through 36. But if I cast out devils by the Spirit of God, 
then the kingdom of God is coming to you. So he looks at, he said, if I'm doing things by the Spirit of God, the kingdom of God has come unto you. And if he's in control and doing these things by the kingdom of God, we see him as the king. And then uh, Acts 2, 28 and through 36. 2, 29 through 36, sorry. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He seeing his he seeing this before spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we are we all are witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this, which ye now see and hear. For David is not ascended into heaven, but he saith himself, The Lord saith unto the Lord, Set thou on my right hand, until I make thy foes my, my footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. So we have an Acts fulfilled. Christ is Lord. He's sitting down at the right hand of the Father, and he has been given reign over everything. We don't see a halfway reigning God. We don't see a partially reigning God. Jesus Christ is reigning over everything. And if we actually, if we look over, and I won't have anybody turn there, but if we were to look over to Revelation chapter 19, we're given the title of Jesus. And in Revelation 19, it says, He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So we see Christ encompasses these three different aspects, these three different roles that God had given to the people in the Old Testament. What had happened, and this will transition us into number two, what had happened was each of these people... In each of these situations, we're given proxies, so to speak, between them and God. And that's why we can see the need for buffers and bridges. So number two, we have, why do we have buffers and bridges? The buffers in Scripture are there to protect us from the direct wrath of God for sin. We need bridges to connect us 
to God whom we cannot approach ourselves. And one of the key places that we see this and that we'll look at is in Moses. Moses went up on Mount Sinai and was basically a buffer between God and the people. God said, you know what, Moses, I'm done. I'm going to kill them all. And Moses, as their federal head, as their mediator, acted for them and said, God, remember your promises. He wasn't, we understand that God wasn't on a, some kind of wild hinge from Scripture. We understand what was going on, but Moses' prayer was, remember your promises to Abraham. God would not have, have ceased his promise to Abraham because Moses was a promised seed of Abraham. But all that being said, Moses was there as a buffer between the people of God and the wrath of God. You see this happen with David. When God gets ready to pour down his wrath upon Israel, he asked David, he said, would you prefer that the wrath be poured down in this way, this way, or this way? He was a buffer between the people of God and their God. We need bridges to connect us to God whom we cannot approach. The, the people were around Mount Sinai and they said, we can't go up there. So they sent Moses up and Moses communed with God and brought God's word back down to them. Sam, if you don't mind looking at Deuteronomy 5 verses 25 and 27. Lindsay, if you'll look at Deuteronomy 18 verses 9 through 19. And this will give us a picture of both buffers and bridges in the scripture. Whenever you're ready. Now, therefore, why should we die that this great fire will consume us? If we hear the voice of the Lord our God any more, then we shall die. For who is there of all flesh that hath heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of the fire? As we have and lived, go thou near and hear all that the Lord our God shall say. And speak thou unto us all that the Lord our God shall speak unto thee, and we will hear and do it. So they're sending Moses saying, you need to go for us. We can't go up there. God will consume us. So they're sending Moses as a buffer between them and God. And then, Lindsay, if you'll read the, the section in uh, chapter 18. When thou art come into the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, Thou shalt not learn to do after the abominations of those nations. There shall not be found among you any one that maketh his son or his daughter to pass through the fire, or that useth divination, or an observer of times, or an enchanter, or a witch, or a charmer, or a consulter, consulter with familiar spirits, or a wizard, or a necromancer. For... All that do these things are abomination unto the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord thy God doth drive them out from before thee. Thou shalt be perfect with the Lord thy God. For these nations nations which thou shalt possess hearken unto observers of times and unto diviners. But as for thee, the Lord thy God hath not suffered thee so to do. 
The Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee, of thy brethren, like unto me, unto him ye shall hearken. According to all that thou desirest of the Lord thy God in order, in the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, neither let me see this great fire any more, that I die not. And the Lord said unto him, They have well spoken that which they have spoken. I will raise them up a prophet from among their brethren, like unto thee, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak unto them all that I shall command him. And it shall come to pass that whosoever will not hearken unto my words, which he, sh- he shall speak in my name, I will require it of him. So we have in this text... God speaking to the people, but he says, I'm going to speak with and through a prophet. He said, I'm going to raise up a prophet. He's given them the promises of him raising up prophets to speak for him. So we have, again, we have these, these, these buffers, so to speak, and these bridges. And ultimately what this points us to is in those aspects of these roles, Christ is both a buffer and a bridge for the believer. Christ standed, stands and stood between God and man and took the wrath that was due to us. He took upon himself the wrath of God that was due us. He was our buffer. The wrath of God does does not and will never touch us because Christ has consumed that wrath within himself. And in that same way, we see Christ as a bridge. How do we gain access to God? Well, when Christ died, the veil was rent open. And Hebrews tells us that we can now come with boldness unto the throne of God because of Christ. We can come to God because of Christ and the wrath that God poured out is not poured out on us because of Christ. So I want to look at now that we've kind of covered how these things point us to Christ, how we can identify these things in the Old Testament and help us understand where the signs, the pictures, the covenants, all of these aspects that we see of Christ in the Old Testament We can take these landmarks and see how they are going to point us to Christ in the Old Testament because of what the New Testament has told us. So how do these roles, how are they explained in the New Testament or how are they explained by the New Testament? We see these these roles are claimed by Christ and fulfilled in Christ. When we looked at that from the first point, ultimately... Christ is our one and only mediator. And we know 1 Timothy says that there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. He fulfills all of these mediating roles. The mediators in the Old Testament, we've seen, we've heard from the book of Numbers, from the book of Deuteronomy, from other places in the Old Testament, that God was giving them mediators between God and them. 
God put a mediator in their place. In that section of scripture that Lindsay just read, he said, I'm going to raise up a prophet. And that prophet is going to mediate between you and me. But what Christ does is he fulfills all three aspects of mediation. The prophet couldn't mediate in the way that the king could. And the king couldn't mediate in the way that the prophet could. And the prophet and the king couldn't mediate in the way that the priest could. They were all mediating different areas between God and his people. But what Christ does is he comes in and he collects all three of these mediating roles. The prophet, the priest, and the king. He puts them all upon himself and he carries out the mediation between God and man. And that's the reason Paul says in 1 Timothy that there is one mediator. There's not, we're not looking for a king to help mediate. We're not looking for a priest to help Christ mediate. We're not looking for prophets to help Christ mediate because Christ is the one mediator. He has, he has encompassed within himself all types of mediation that was given by God in the Old Testament. And he mediates on our account in every single one of those ways. And that's what I want to look at. What are those ways that we see Christ mediating on our account? First of all, prophets. That was the first role that we looked at. Prophets had two jobs. They were to bring a mission and they were to bring a message. Those were the two roles of a, pro- of a prophet. They brought a mission and they brought a message. Their mission was to see the glory of God. And if we think about the prophets in the Old Testament, who was it that pointed out to his servant the armies that had surrounded, the heavenly armies that had surrounded them? It was a prophet of God. Who was it that was taken up and saw a vision of God high and lifted up? Angels going around saying, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. Who was it that had a vision That the angels came down to him and laid hot coals on his lips because he was a man of unclean lips among people with unclean lips. All of these men were prophets. They had the mission from God. They had the message from God. And the mission was to see the glory of God, which God showed through his prophets. They were to see the glory of God. And secondly, they were to hear the voice of God. Every time you see a prophet acting in the scripture, he says, thus saith the Lord. They heard the voice of God and they would see the glory of God. Their message was to show and to speak. So their mission was to see the glory of God and to hear the voice of God, but their message was to show the people the glory of God and to speak to the people the message of God. God shows the glory to Isaiah and Isaiah shows that same glory to the people of God. God shows his glory to Jeremiah. Jeremiah in turn shows the glory of God to the people of God. God shows the glory of God to Elijah, and Elijah shows the glory of God to the people of God. He heals, you see that in healings, you see it in different aspects, but you see these prophets showing 
the people the glory of God. Secondly, see them speaking the words of God. God said to them, say this, and right after that you'll find them going somewhere and saying this. Even in the case of Jonah, Jonah was a prophet. God said, go here and say this. What did Jonah ultimately end up doing? He fulfilled his mission. He took what God said to say and said it. Every one of God's prophets took it and they said it. Now, God said in Deuteronomy 18, he said, if you don't hearken to the words of my prophets, it's on you. I'm using my prophet to convey my word to you. And if you don't hearken to it, you are accountable for what he said, because that was for me. Secondly, we see priests. Priests' job were to be a minister of three things. They were to be a minister of divine presence, a minister of divine purity, and a minister of divine peace. Those were the three aspects that the priest held. They held or they ministered unto the presence of God, the purity of God, and the peace of God. So they were mediating between God and man, but they were mediating the presence of God. In the tabernacle, we think of that. In the temple, we think of that. They're mediating. They're the one who's going back behind the veil, and they're mediating to the people the presence of God. They are the one who have all the rights that they have to keep up with, all the things that they have to do, and they're, medi- they're mediating to the people the purity of God, and they're the ones who, after the sacrificing is done, bring to the people of God the peace of God. In essence, saying your sins have been atoned for. They've been covered. You're okay for the next year. They brought that peace of God. Presence spoke of the sanctuary. And somebody will turn to John 1.18. Actually, Dad may be able to quote John 1.18. I know you can, just maybe not off the bat. Brother Charles, if you'll go ahead and look at Hebrews 8, 1 through 5, and uh, Lindsay, Hebrews 2, 4 and 5. No man had seen God at any time. The only begotten of the Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he had declared Jesus. It's John 1.18. Go ahead and back up John 1.14. That may have been a typo. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his word, glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace. Lindsay? God also bearing them witness. Wait, what did you have? Hebrews 2? 2. Two All right, Brother Charles. Yeah. Hebrews 8, 1 through 5. Now of the things which we have spoken, this is the Son. We have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary, 
and of the, of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices. Wherefore it is of necessity that this man have somewhat also to offer. For if he were on earth, he should not be a priest, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law, who serves unto the example and shadow of heavenly things as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle. For see, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern showed to thee in the mount. And Lindsay, he'll look at 2, 4, and 5. God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders, and with diverse miracles, and gifts of the Holy Ghost, according to his own will. For unto the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come, wherefore, whereof we speak. I want to run off a run off a rabbit right there, but I'm not going to. Um, I'll save that for later on, not tonight, but later on. Anyway, so we see that the prophet had the saw the glory of God. Here's the voice of God. They're to show and they're to speak these things. And who did that ultimately? Who did that? It was Christ. Christ saw the glory of God. He beheld the glory of God. He was with God in His glory. And he showed the people the glory of God. Not only that, he was the word of God. And he spake unto the people the word of God. Priests were ministers in, of, present, of the presence of divinity, the purity of divinity, and the peace of divinity. Presence spoke, to the sanct- spoke of the sanctuary. Purity spoke of the separation. And peace spoke of the sacrifice. And that's what we've looked at. He was minister. He brought to the people the presence of God, the sanctuary of God. The people of God couldn't go into the sanctuary of God. Only the priest could. So the priest was to mediate the sanctuary of God to the people. Well, John 1.14 tells us, that Jesus was the sanctuary of God. He's ministering the presence and the sanctuary of God to the people. He was literally God with us. He dwelt with his people. He, as a priest, brought the sanctuary, mediated the sanctuary into their presence. He was pure. And he was separate. He brought the purity of God and the separateness or the holiness of God to the people so that they could see it. He was mediating those things to his people. And peace spoke of sacrifice. Ultimately, Christ was the sacrifice. Hebrews tells us that he laid down his life once for all. He is that completely atoning sacrifice and he mediates that peace to his people. When we wonder if our sin today was too much and is going to keep us from God, he as our priest mediates his peace to our heart that he is enough. Yeah. 
He mediates those things to us. And then thirdly, we can look at the kings. Kings brought two things with them. They brought righteous warfare and they brought wise rule. Their warfare was to conquer and to protect. And their rule was to guide and to direct. And as we read before, Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He reigns as a righteous and wise ruler. The Bible says that he will sit at the right hand until all of his enemies be made his footstool. And we know from the book of Revelation, how does he slay his enemies? John said that he will slay his enemies with the words of his mouth. And that's exactly what he did and what he does. When he was in front of Pilate, what did he say? He said, you don't have any authority unless it's given unto you by the Father. Whenever a demon would be cast out, they didn't even have to wonder if they had to leave or not. Because he was, he was a proponent of that righteous warfare. Even in our day, his words are still in righteous warfare with the sinful aspects of our culture and our creation. And he's a wise ruler. So we see him conquering evil through his word and protecting his people by his word. And we see his rule and his guide and his direction. He guides us and he directs us as our Lord. And that's what the word Lord means. It means we're beholding to him. First Peter says we've been bought with a price. We are not our own. He is our Lord and he is in us and through us and for us bringing righteous warfare and wise rule. There's a quick section here that I want to look at. This is actually from the Westminster Shorter Confession and it's questions 24 through 26. This was this was pinned down in I think 1626 as a confession of faith for believers in that time. A lot of what we've, we see after the Reformation started in 1517. That's when it started. But it raged on for about 200 years. And what you have in the 1600s specifically is you have the translation of the King James Bible. And you have multiple confessions of faith or statements of faith that were written by Christians to say this is exactly what we believe. They weren't going to leave it up to chance that people would somehow get intertwined back into Roman theology. They did not want people going back to the Catholic Church. So they put down on paper exactly what their statement of faith was. Just like when we constituted this church, we had down on a piece of paper exactly what we believe. If anybody comes in and believes specifically differently from those things then that's a right for dismissal because they are going against orthodox teaching. 
If there's someone here that gets ill with someone else because of something that they believe, that's nowhere in there. That's not a point of, of contention for us. If it's not in our statement of faith, then it's not a point of contention. We may disagree, but there's no reason to be contentious over things that aren't written down in our statements of faith. That's the reason that there are, and not all, because some things have become skewed over the past two and 300 years, but that's the reason that we can still have some fellowship with a Bible church down the road or maybe a Presbyterian church here or a Lutheran church there. Because our statements of faith in some points are similar. Now, where they leave our statement of faith, we have to leave fellowship because that is orthodox teaching. The reason we don't have fellowship with, with mosques is because they don't align with their statement of faith. But if we find an independent Presbyterian church like one I know of in Greenville that adheres to our statement of faith, we can have fellowship with them. The whole point being is these these statements of faith that have been referenced a few times in this this line of teaching are statements to help keep basically to keep orthodox teaching in its place. So we know what was being said. So we know what these people believed and what they had written down in 1626 about Christ's offices as prophet, priest and king was this. How does Christ Feel the office of a prophet. And just a side note, what we do on Sunday night is kind of the same thing. We just take questions and we read the answers and the scripture that goes with it. That is mainly just full disclosure. That's mainly for the children that sit in the services that night. So they can hear the answers to questions. But it's also for believers who aren't as strong in what they believe. So they can hear answers to questions that they may not hear answers to otherwise. But in any case, how does Christ fill the office of prophet? Christ fills the office of a prophet in revealing to us his word and spirit, the will of God for our complete salvation. A prophet is a person who speaks for God. Not only about the future, but about the present also. He makes plain what God requires. We need a prophet because we are ignorant of God's way. Through Christ, though Christ is now in heaven, he teaches us by his written word, the Bible, and has promised the Holy Spirit to remove the darkness of our minds. So this is how we see Christ as a prophet. We see him as a prophet because he does these things. He fulfills that role of a prophet. He brings us God's will and God's word, just like the prophets of the Old Testament did. Secondly, how does Christ fill the office of a priest? Christ fills the office of a priest in his once offering up himself to God as a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and reconcile us to God. And in making consistent intercession for us. A priest is a person anointed by God from among men to represent them before God. He offers sacrifice and speaks to God or intercedes for them. We need a priest because we are guilty. Christ gave himself for us. His way, a perfect sacrifice. 
and fully adequate to satisfy God's wrath. So it occurred once only and cannot be repeated. Now in the virtue of his sacrifice, he appears in heaven for us. It is not necessary to suppose an audible pleading. His presence is enough. And what's being said there is that Christ is there acting as an anointed vessel for his people. He offers sacrifice and he speaks to God or intercedes for them. But the difference with Christ is he doesn't have to offer sacrifice because he did once. And it was enough to completely satisfy the wrath of God. And it can never be repeated. The virtue of his sacrifice appearing in heaven is enough for him interceding. He doesn't even have to audibly plead to God to intercede on our behalf. His presence in heaven is enough. He doesn't have to ask God to please have mercy on this person or please have mercy on that person or please cover that person's sin with my blood. The presence of Christ in heaven is enough. We don't have to worry about God forgetting about us, about us not being interceded for because we got slipped under a piece of paper on some docket somewhere. The presence of God as our priest is enough. Thirdly, how does Christ fill the office of a king? Christ fills the office of a king in making us his willing subjects. He makes us his willing subjects. Subjects, his willing subjects, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all of his and our and our enemies. A king is the chief authority over a people and a country, and in earlier times was no mere figurehead. That's what kings are today. They're figureheads. The presidents, for most part, are figureheads. Other people are normally behind the scenes controlling things. But Christ isn't that way. He isn't a mere figurehead. We need a king because we are in bondage to sin. To truly receive Christ, we must take him as our, not only as our teacher and our savior, but as our king as well. We accept his word and we keep his commandments out of gratitude and love. Not for his gratitude and love, but because of his gratitude and love. Jesus has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. He is able to win us to himself, care for us in our weakness, and bring us at last by his grace into our eternal home. And I don't think I can add a whole lot from what they said, just to be real honest. But if you do look back one page and real quickly and we'll be done. In our, in our figure or our graph, just to convey the, the practical side of, of what we were talking about. You have what we, what we have basically have our graph from last week where we see the road signs. For example, the road sign from Noah showed us a rescue from judgment. Christ is going to rescue us from judgment. The road sign from Moses was the tabernacle. Christ was going to tabernacle among among us. The road sign from David was a shepherd. Christ is the good shepherd, etc. 
And all of these road signs point us to people who are types and part of a covenant that point us all to Christ. And all of these roads and all of these streams flow from these landmarks, these prophets, priests, and kings. So when we are reading the scriptures, when we're reading, for example, of David, we can find David flowing from the mountain of a king. David mediated for the people of God as their king. David failed. He failed tremendously in some ways. His his kingdom was taken over. Different things happened to David. But where he failed as a mediator, he points us to a better mediator. He points us to a better king. Where we find Abraham, who God calls a priest. When we find him failing by going into Hagar, by going down to Egypt, all of the mistakes that he made, we have a better priest. We have a high priest. When we find Adam, the Bible calls Adam a prophet. He failed. He didn't tell people what God had said. He didn't show people God's glory. But that points us to Christ, who did show people God's glory, who did not fail to tell them what God had said. And that's the way we're looking at the Old Testament to point us to Christ. When we're reading the Old Testament about prophets, those prophets are going to point us to covenants that lead to Christ. Those prophets are going to point us to people that are types of Christ. Those prophets are going to point us to events that are road signs to Christ. But ultimately, those prophets are a role that Christ himself takes on. He embodies all of these things because he embodies all of these roles. And that's what we need to come away with on our, on our exercise sheet. When we're reading in Leviticus about the year of Jubilee or about David and Goliath or about a tree planted by the river of water or about Jeremiah or about the just shall live by faith, we are looking at how these roles are fulfilled in these verses. And by seeing how these roles are fulfilled, it can help us find the events that are events and types of Christ would help us find the people that are types of Christ and it'll help us confine the, the covenants that unveil to us Christ. And that's, that's the whole conclusion of these roles. That's what these roles are here for. And that's what we should come away from these roles with.